Baruch chapter number 1. <clears throat> Luke is the third of the what we refer to as the Gospels. It is uh, the longest and uh, arguably the most comprehensive account of all of the four Gospels. Um, and uh, Luke, he more than likely, uh, most people believe that Luke was not a Jewish person, but that he was uh, a Gentile. Uh, he was a co-laborer, a fellow laborer with the Apostle Paul. He is uh, known for writing uh, two of our uh, New Testament books, the, the Gospel of Luke and also uh, the Book of Acts. In fact, uh, they consider this Gospel to be uh, what he was referring to in Acts chapter 1 where he says, The former treatise have I made unto the old Theophilus. And um, the idea that this was the previous writing that he had done and uh, pretty well everyone that uh, knows these things and studies these things is in agreement with that and, and uh, holding that to be true. It's also the historical position of uh, a lot of the early uh, churches uh, in the first few centuries. They uh, also held very strongly to the fact that Luke was the author of both this book and the book of Acts. Uh, in, uh, in Luke, he uh, writes in such a way that he translates a lot of uh, the Aramaic terms that would have been used into Greek. And it seems to be through a lot of the, uh, the explanations that he gives uh, about Jewish customs of the day, um, about some of the geography. He's very explicit and very descriptive of the geography and the things that take place there that he's writing to non primarily with the emphasis to non-Jewish people. It's almost as though he's writing to Gentiles and uh, taking the time to explain some of the Jewish customs and practices and uh, some of the geographical locations that are referred to. Um, he goes into some, some pretty depth and, and some detail there. So it appears from all things that we can see of it that uh, his intent was this to be uh, written and that most people that were going to read it were going to be the Gentile people. And that, that sort of holds uh, some logic into it because he was a co-painting with the Apostle Paul. And so their primary ministry, the main focus of their ministry, was to the Jewish people. It's not that they uh, never dealt with the Jews, but uh, the primary focus of Paul's ministry was uh, to uh, reach the Jews. He considered himself an apostle or to the Gentiles. He referred to himself as the uh, apostle to the Gentiles. And uh, with Luke being his companion and co-laborer, uh, kind of holds uh, some valid uh, validity to the fact that more than likely Luke was expecting more of Jewish or Gentile people to read this than Jewish people, um, which is probably why it is more uh, comprehensive. It gives the fullest account of any of the four Gospels of the entirety of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning with um, some of his uh, lineage and genealogy and, uh, and some of the young years of the Lord Jesus Christ that the other Gospels don't deal with. Um, it can be, he, he pictures Christ primarily uh, as the perfect man, the only one that lived a perfect and a sinless life. And uh, he focuses a lot on the humanity of Christ. Uh, and understand this, that God did not cease to be God when he became man. He was still all God, but he was also in the form of man. The Bible talks about that in Philippians chapter 2. And he was in all points tempted like as we are. He felt the feelings of the infirmities of man. And Luke is the most expressive of the four Gospels about the feelings of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he felt about things. 
and the grief that he had and the heartbreak and uh, the experiences that he had of human emotions and understanding the humanity of man. And so Luke really kind of emphasizes him as uh, the, the God-man, the, the, the perfect man, the one that would come and live uh, a sinless life and be in all points um, valid as a sacrifice for our sin. And uh, he's very, very uh, strong in those emphasis. So uh, the book of Luke can be divided mainly into four sections. We'll give you those four sections, talk a little bit about them. Uh, the first one is uh, chapters 1 through chapter 4 and about uh, verse number 13. Uh, he deals with just <coughs> excuse me, introducing uh, Christ as the Son of Man. He talks about his birth. Uh, he talks about John the Baptist being born as well and the uh, fact that he was going to be the forerunner of uh, the Christ. Uh, he intertwines uh, the births of uh, the announcements, the births of John the Baptist, and shows how their, uh, uh, their births coincided, uh, how that there was um, uh, the visit from Mary to Elizabeth, and uh, how John the Baptist leapt in the womb, and uh, all of these things uh, when Mary walked into the room. And uh, Luke deals with a lot of this thing about introducing him. He traces the lineage of Christ all the way back to Adam, and he deals primarily with, in these chapters, primarily with uh, the early years, the, the birth, uh, the visit to the temple, uh, these types of things. Um, the Lord uh, prepares for 30 years to do three and a little over three years. Most people leave about a three and a half year uh, ministry. And boy, that's a long time to prepare to do a ministry, isn't it? And have you ever thought of this? I mean, I, I've been at Keith Heights here now, I think, five or going on six years uh, as pastor. And uh, I think, you know, that's twice as long, almost, as the Lord Jesus spent in his ministry. And yet when I'm off the scene, people are going to forget me within just a few years, I imagine, maybe a few months even. But look at the impact of the three and a half years of ministry the Lord Jesus has. Uh, I mean, here we are 2,000 years later, and his impact is still felt in just three and a half years of ministry. And again, it's just another proof, another evidence of the fact that he was the Son of God uh, in person, as in human flesh. And uh, Luke talks a little bit about this. Uh, he talks about um, the uh, early years in that uh, section and the introduction of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the second section uh, is the beginning of the ministry of uh, Christ as the Son of Man. Uh, and this is from chapter 4 and verse number 14 or so uh, through chapter 9 and verse number 50. So about five chapters here, six chapters. And it's in this section when he begins his ministry that it's, it's, there are two things that Luke really tries to drive home the point on. And the first part of this second section, the first half of it, a little over half of it, is establishing the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, His authority. And uh, He shows this and demonstrates this um, from chapter 4 through chapter 6 and verse number 49 uh, by showing His authority over uh, devils. Uh, I know in the day that we live, we refer to them as demons, but the Bible doesn't use that term. And uh, I was shown that a number of years ago, a couple of years ago, and I like to use Bible terms when we use Bible terms. So the Bible refers to them as devils. 
uh, it'd be what we refer to as demons today, it's, but the Bible doesn't use that term. The Bible uses the term devils. And so he shows his authority over the devils. He shows his authority over uh, sickness and disease. Uh, he shows his authority over nature itself. Um, we can all remember the accounts of uh, some of those things. He uh, shows his authority to forgive sin, uh, which only the Son of God can do. And uh, he shows his authority over uh, the traditions of the Jewish people and how that they were wrong in the fact of their traditions and uh, how he has authority basically in dominion over all the earth. Uh, all people, all, uh, everything that was created, he shows his authority. And so he does this uh, as he begins his ministry. You'll find that Luke is very chronological in his, in his uh, expression. That some of the Gospels will skip around and the events aren't always in exact chronological order. Luke is very, very precise in his chronology. And uh, so he, he begins with Christ establishing his authority. And once that's done, then, then he deals with uh, the, uh, the ministry, the works that Christ accomplishes uh, by that authority that was established. Now, there were some works that he did uh, during that first part of, of Luke's explanation here, but he really focuses on uh, the preaching of Christ, uh, the healing of Christ, and the emphasis that Christ put on discipling his 12 disciples uh, in that latter part of the second section of the book of Luke. Um, and by the way, I believe that when we serve the Lord and we share the gospel with people, we need to make sure that the authority of God's Word is established with them before we begin to uh, show them the gospel message. If they don't understand the authority of God's Word, uh, then that's the only tool that we have uh, to reach them with the gospel. They need to understand that, and they need to know that. Uh, I was talking with a number of folks, and uh, for years I had uh, people that would say, uh, Brother Greg, what do you do when you come across somebody that's an atheist or, or an agnostic? They don't believe in God. And, uh, I, or they would come and say, I, I tried this, and it just didn't seem to work. It didn't seem to get through to them. I, I, I showed them proof, and I gave them arguments, and uh, we debated for hours, and it just didn't seem to work. And uh, for a number of years, when I was younger in ministry, I didn't know what the best answer was for that. And as I got older in ministry, I, I began to realize, and I, I just started telling folks, quote Scripture. Quote Scripture. It is the thing that God has said is quick and powerful. Uh, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And uh, I, I think we can make arguments. Uh, we can give opinions after Scripture has been given. But I don't think we can ever do anything more authoritative and more establishing the truth until we've given them the Scriptures. Uh, I think it's very, very important of this. And uh, so Christ gives us an example. Luke uh, displays it here in the way that he wrote this, that Christ established his authority and then began his work. And uh, what a wonderful uh, illustration that is. Um, let's go to uh, the third section is from chapter 9 through chapter 19. And uh, we're going to read several passages here in a few minutes to look at some of this. But I'm just trying to give you the framework and then we're going to go back and put a little bit of the meat on it, if you will. Um, the third section is from chapter 9 through chapter 19. And this uh, really is dealing primarily with the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he takes a lot of his uh, gospel to uh, talk about this and to illustrate this. And he draws a contrast. And the contrast is really, it's very apparent in Luke, probably more so than any of the other four gospels, although it is there in the other gospels. Luke is very masterful and very, uh, very distinct in making this contrast 
and that is that you have uh, a uh, growing of uh, belief and followers among those that followed him. Uh, their their loyalty to him, their their wonderment at him, uh, their the following begins to grow, and the multitudes get larger and larger as he progresses towards Calvary, and it, it culminates in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, and so there is a there is a great uh, amount of folks believing in him if they were willing to accept him for who he said he was, and uh, and so uh, there is some of that. But but Luke draws the contrast that uh, his followers among his followers there was great belief, but among the religious and civil leaders of the day there was absolute rejection. Um, I, I've thought of this for so long and. I really believe in, in studying and looking at what these religious leaders were doing and even seeing what some of them said. It seems to me that they were not so much concerned uh, about refuting the Lord Jesus Christ to be the Son of God as it was they didn't want to lose their influence and their power in the society that they lived in. And so as a result of that, they had to undermine all of the things that were vividly on display in the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry. Uh, his miracles, uh, his teaching. His teaching was always from a point of authority. And these men had to undermine him in order to retain their authority and their influence uh, over the people. And so I think there were some sincere people uh, even in that group. And there were certainly some of them even who uh, learned to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and, and were not a part of it. But the majority of the religious leaders of that day, the priests, the scribes, uh, the Pharisees, uh, even the Sadducees, uh, they, all, they all were anti-Christ. They did not uh, want to hold to these things. And uh, so you see a lot of that in, in chapters 9 through chapter 19. But uh, again, the contrast is given. As much as you see the rejection of Christ by the religious leaders, uh, Luke also is very clear to, to express the fact that those that were following Christ followed Him uh, with, with all their hearts. And there was a great movement of people believing on Christ, and uh, He certainly reached uh, multitudes of people. Um, his uh, rejection is mentioned in chapters 4 through 6, which was the second sac- section of the book. But really it's emphasized in chapters 9 through 19. Um, his disciples are absolutely convinced that he is the Son of God. In fact, he asks them, uh, Whom say you that I am? And Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, uh, and the, the Son of God. And the fact that he recognized Jesus as the Son of God. The religious leaders, on the other hand, uh, were, were accusing him of using the power of Satan or the power of devils to accomplish his work. And just a completely opposite view of how things are. In chapter 11 of this third, uh, this third chapter, or the third section, in chapter 11, we find an entire chapter where Christ uh, condemns and pronounces a lot of uh, woes. Uh, in Scripture, he would say, woe unto you, woe unto them. Uh, and these were things that uh, were, were uh, taken very seriously. I mean, you, you, didn't, uh, you didn't give a woe to somebody if it wasn't something that was uh, very, very serious, very uh, strong accusation. And uh, he gives a, a whole series in chapter 11 of these woes to uh, those that were uh, uh, against him, the religious leaders of the day. 
from chapter 11 on, uh, we find that his emphasis changes once again. And uh, he, up until now, he's been establishing his authority. He's been teaching and preaching and healing. And in chapter 11 and on, it's not that he doesn't do any of that in past 11. He does some of it. But the emphasis changes. You can see a distinct change after chapter 11 uh, in his focus. And his focus uh, is to teach and to train and get his disciples ready for his uh, departure. And so from chapter 12 through chapter 19, or really through the end of the, the book of Luke, Christ is still teaching and training his disciples in several areas. Uh, he teaches his disciples uh, how to pray. Uh, that was one of them. I think that's a vital thing to teach. He taught them about covetousness. He taught them about faithfulness. He taught them about repentance. He taught them about humility. He taught them about discipling others. He taught them about thankfulness. He taught them about evangelism. He taught them about finances and their giving. He taught them on forgiveness. And he taught them how to serve. And most importantly, he taught them about salvation. And, and you find the Lord Jesus Christ emphasizing these things. If you ever wanted a punch list of things that we as Christians ought to look into our lives and say, am I, am I growing in these areas? This list would be a great list to, to look at. If we're looking at a list of things that we in, in our areas of service ought to be focusing on and teaching and training others on, it would be this list as well. Uh, there's no greater uh, usage of uh, Scripture than to find the examples that the Lord Jesus Christ left us. And these are the things that he felt important to teach and to train his disciples. And I believe when he gave us the commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, and the fact that he told us to teach them in all things, all the things whatsoever he had commanded us, uh, that these are the things he expects for us to uh, bring to the world. Not just the plan of salvation. Uh, I, uh, I, I've gone to a number of Bible colleges in, in my past when I was younger and uh, went to some rather strong ministries. And uh, the emphasis was on service, 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 and soul winning, soul winning, soul winning, telling people the gospel. And, um, and I sat in a lot of those classes, a lot of those uh, places. And yes, the Bible teaches we ought to be serving. And yes, the Bible teaches we ought to be soul winning. We ought to be telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we preached on that last week. Uh, but uh, I actually sat in a, a large conference with a speaker on the platform with a lot of impressionable young college minds of men getting ready to go into ministry, and I heard the preacher say that you don't find discipling people anywhere in Scripture, that it is only to be salvation, and that it was up to the person that got saved to seek out discipleship. And I heard him teach this. And, and they were trying to make the point that you just get as many people saved as you can and don't worry about teaching them anything. I do not find that in my Bible. My Bible teaches quite clearly that Jesus took the time not only to teach salvation, but to teach and to train His disciples in these areas. I think we find quite regularly in Scripture the fact that we as Christians not only are to live these things, but we're to commit those things to faithful men who are able to teach others also. Uh, and I, I uh, am concerned sometimes when I hear of a church uh, that has strong soul-winning zeal and a strong evangelistic desire, but has no desire to teach and to train people in the things of the gospel. And uh, I think we can find, again, 
uh, a wonderful uh, example here of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He expects our ministry, uh, our service to be like. The fourth section of Luke is from chapter 19 through the end of the book. And this is the crucifixion, the resurrection (coughs) of the Lord Jesus Christ. It begins with the triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem. uh, And shortly after uh, the opposition, he went from being called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to being ridiculed greatly by the religious leaders of the day, the priests, the scribes, the Sadducees. uh, They all combined together and they, they unified He went through three religious trials. He went through three civil trials. They condemned him to be crucified. And, of course, we've all read of those accounts. And um, he, uh, he raises from the dead. And when he raises from the dead, Luke gives account of the fact that uh, he was seen by a number of his followers and disciples and uh, for a great period of time. Uh, our, a period of time after he had risen from the dead, that he had made himself uh, appear to other people as eyewitnesses. Luke is not, out of uh, the four Gospels, Luke is not an eyewitness to these events. Look with me in Luke chapter 1. We're going to read several verses here. Uh, he was not an eyewitness of these events, but he was uh, writing about eyewitness accounts and uh, some other things that had been recorded at the time and other uh, men of, script, uh, of the New Testament writers that had written some things previously he used for sources. Look in verse number 1. We're going to read a few verses here. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. Well, I love that statement, don't you? In other words, he said, I'm, I'm putting this stuff down. The, the things that are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were what? Eyewitnesses. So he said, these eyewitnesses delivered this to me. I was, I was there when they told, told me about this, and they were eyewitness to this account. So a lot of what Luke writes about here is not things he saw, but things that uh, others had seen and related to him and told him about. Um, and the Bible says, and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, uh, uh, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know with certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Um, so there were two sources uh, from the human side of things that Luke uses. He uses others that were eyewitnesses, and he used some writings that had already been written. But the truth of the matter is, and, and there, in studying for some of these notes, I was reading one writer, and he was talking about these sources. And he said, this is where Luke got all of his material from. And I disagree with that. Because the Bible says all Scripture is given by what? Inspiration of God. And it's profitable. And while he may have used and relied on some accounts to give him some knowledge and insight into some things, the words that Luke penned were given to him by who? The Holy Spirit. So it really doesn't matter who the eyewitnesses were or who the the writings were. Uh, Ultimately, Luke's record came from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And he wrote those things. Very important for us to know that. I don't think there's anything wrong with us understanding some of the influence of some of the uh, places where these guys got these things from. We looked at them in the Old Testament, too. Sometimes they would refer to other writings in their writing. They would say, uh, you know, as it has been written by the prophet Isaiah or uh, the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, but ultimately, 
they wrote those things because the Holy Spirit uh, breathed those things for them to write, and they penned them down. So we need to keep that in mind. Um, he also addresses, and it's interesting because both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are addressed to the same person. And that person is Theophilus. Uh, we'll find him mentioned here in Luke. We'll find him mentioned again uh, in the book of Acts. Luke's name is only mentioned three times in the New Testament. Uh, let's look at those very quickly. First of all, let's turn to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. <clears throat> and let's look in verse number 14. Colossians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul refers to him here, and he says, Luke, and notice how he refers to him, the beloved physician. And so Paul refers to Luke, uh, not only as his co and fellow laborer, but he refers to him as uh, his beloved physician. Uh, look in 2 Timothy chapter number uh, 4. 2 Timothy chapter number 4. And this is the end of Paul's ministry. Uh, he, is, he knows that death is near. This is the last book that he's writing, last letter that he's writing from his Roman prison. Uh, most people believe uh, to, second, uh, to uh, Timothy. This is the second thing he's written to Timothy. And uh, I want you to notice what he says here in chapter 4, verse number 11. He makes this statement. Let's go back to verse number uh, 9. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. He's asking Timothy to come visit him. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Cretans to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Now, he only refers to Demas as the one forsaking. So we assume from the way it's worded here uh, that Cretans and Titus were sent to do a work, uh, that they left to, to go into ministry. Uh, we certainly know that Titus was uh, one of the men that Paul was investing in and teaching him how to pastor. But he makes this statement in verse 11. He says, Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me uh, for the ministry. Uh, and so we find that uh, Luke is the only one that is with the Apostle Paul in his last days while he's in that Roman imprisonment. And it speaks very highly of the faithfulness of Luke. Uh, just a tremendous fellow. Not a lot is said about him. But I believe God used him in a very mighty way to encourage the heart of the Apostle Paul uh, to be a fellow laborer, uh, to help him along the way, and uh, certainly was used to pen uh, some Scripture. The third time we find him mentioned is in the book of Philemon. Uh, the book of Philemon. And that, if you, it's a very small book. It's only uh, 25 verses long. It's right before Hebrews if you have a hard time finding it. So go to Hebrews and back up a few pages, all right? Uh, it's not a book that we uh, preach out of very often. I, I was thinking about that as I was studying this. I thought, boy, we don't hardly ever preach out of Philemon. I may have to do some sermons out of it. Um, there's some good material here. Philemon, in case you don't know the story, uh, Philemon was a, a slave uh, that was owned by a man by the name of Onesimus. And uh, he, he escaped. He decided he was going to run away. And the penalty for an escaped uh, slave, if they were ever caught, uh, was death. They were to die. And in the course of his escape, he, he meets the Apostle Paul. And Paul leads him to Christ, and he trusts Christ as a Savior. And Paul teaches and, and invests in him, 
And then he said, Ones, or he said Philemon, or, uh, Onesimus, I'm sorry, Onesimus was a slave. Philemon is the one he's writing to. Uh, Onesimus, you need to go back to Philemon, and you need to present yourself to him. And Onesimus, of course, he's thinking, I'm probably going to die because I ran away. And so Paul writes this letter to the slave owner, Philemon, and says, you need to receive him as a brother. He's trusted Christ as a Savior. And as a result of that, Onesimus was able to go back to Philemon and to serve in his household and was not killed uh, because of that. Uh, so that's the background. That's kind of the story of Philemon, uh, who was the slave owner, and Onesimus was the slave. Um, but look with me, if you will, in, chap- uh, in chapter 1, because there's only one, verse number 24. The Bible says this, uh, Marcus, Aristarchus, I mentioned to you, I think it was last week, if you get a chance to study a little bit about Aristarchus, there's not a lot in Scripture about him. Uh, there are some historical records. But Aristarchus was a tremendous fellow, and there's some things you can read in the little bit of Scripture that he's mentioned in that speak very highly of Aristarchus. But Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, and here again he says, my fellow laborers. So again here, Luke is mentioned as the fellow laborer to the Apostle Paul. Um, so so we, we see that he's only mentioned three different times in the New Testament, uh, but was certainly used mightily by the Lord Jesus Christ. The man he wrote to, uh, Theophilus, is referred to uh, not only here in Luke, if you look in Luke chapter 1 again for a moment, uh, but I want you to see what, how he refers to him. <coughs> Excuse me. Luke chapter 1. And uh, let's go to verse number uh, 3. He says, It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order to, uh, in order uh, most, and notice how he refers to him, most excellent Theophilus. And he, and he refers to him here um, very strongly as uh, the most excellent Theophilus. Uh, now let's turn to Acts chapter 23, and we're going to see some other mentions where Luke refers to Theophilus. Uh, Acts chapter 23, and uh, let's look down to verse number 26. I'll go to verse 25. And he wrote a letter after this manner, Claudius uh, uh, Lysias, unto the most excellent uh, governor, uh, Felix, sendeth... Uh, I don't have the right verse here. I'm sorry. I wrote the wrong one down again. I apologize for that. But he uses this phrase several times to refer to... Oh, I know why I, was, I use this passage. He's using this uh, phrase, this, this most excellent Theophilus, uh, to indicate men of influence or men of, of high degree. So, and again, that's why I wrote this verse down. I was trying to figure out why did, I didn't have Theophilus in there. But that's why he's using it in verse number 26. He says, most excellent governor Felix sendeth greeting. So we're showing here how that uh, Luke would use this expression for men... Of high degree, so uh, there's not a lot said of Theophilus other than we expect from the the title that he gives him, the way he addresses him, uh, that he was a man of influence. Also, look in chapter 24, verse number three, and we'll see again uh, that he uses a, an expression here. He says, "We accepted always in all places, most noble Felix." So again, he's uh, giving some indication that uh, these types of titles are for the purpose of addressing men of means, men of influence, uh, men of power. Um, and uh, let's see, there was one other one I had written here, again, illustrating that. Verse, uh, chapter 26 and verse number 25. Chapter 26 and verse 25. But he said, I am not mad, uh, most noble Festus. And so again, he's using words like most excellent, most noble, 
that sort of thing. So when we come back to Luke chapter 1, we find that this is the way he addresses Theophilus. And in Acts chapter 1, he refers to him as O Theophilus. Um, But uh, it looks to be that Theophilus was a man of some means, some influence in society. And Luke is writing this while it is intended for the uh, other Gentiles and Greeks to read it. It's written specifically uh, to this man Theophilus so that he can know of these events from an authoritative source. And this is the purpose uh, that he uses to write this thing. Uh, let's see here. Um, I'm about done with the notes here. So it was probably written around 60 uh, A.D., as best we can tell. It certainly was written prior to the destruction of the temple, which happened in 70 A.D., um, but probably in the early time of 60, 61, 62, somewhere in there, uh, A.D. is the best uh, time frame that we can find uh, that was uh, the timing of uh, Paul's, or the, the timing of uh, Luke writing this. One of the reasons we believe it, we know it had to be before 70 A.D. because the temple had not yet been destroyed. Uh, but also there is some indication that this was written during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. Now this wasn't the one that ended up as being the last one where he ended his life in, but there was another imprisonment he had earlier on. Uh, that happened in the early 6080s time frame, and it seems to be that that was the time frame that this book was written. So it gives us kind of a time frame of when it was. Uh, Luke was not married. Uh, he died, uh, according to historical records, he died at 84 years of age. So he served the Lord for quite a while. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, he was most likely from uh, the uh, city of Antioch. Uh, originally, there are some uh, references and things that would lead us to believe he came from that region, uh, at least if not the city itself. Um, the t- uh, the uh, uh, Christ of Luke is that Christ is shown as the uh, compassionate Jesus, uh, who uh, Luke emphasizes quite often throughout his gospel, uh, the feelings of Christ, uh, the empathy of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, toward uh how we deal with things, the, the emotions, the trials, the burdens we go through, uh, and his relating to those things and how Christ was able to understand those. He looks at the compassion uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he emphasizes this in his gospel account. He pictures the Lord Jesus Christ as the ideal Son of Man. Uh, he was one who was uh, acquainted with sorrow, according to uh, Isaiah chapter 53. The Bible said that he would be. And so Luke gives a very good account of this, that he was acquainted with sorrow. Uh, He illustrates that uh, he understood the condition that man was uh, living in and the world that he was living in, the sinful world that he was having to live in. Uh, He knew and understood the the temptations that man went through. And uh, (coughs) Luke shows that he carries out uh, bearing our sorrows and offering himself as the perfect man, uh, the sacrifice, the gift of salvation brings. And uh, so he pictures him that way. Jesus alone uh, fulfilled the Greek ideal of a perfect human. And so again, it stands to reason uh, that uh, he had a very strong Greek emphasis and Gentile emphasis in his writing here. The key theme is Jesus, the Son of Man. The key verses are Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, which we've already read. And chapter 19, verse 10. Let's take a look at that verse very quickly. 
Luke chapter 19 and verse number 10. Luke chapter 19, uh, let's read the entire statement, so we'll go to verse 9. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man, and this is kind of the key verse, really I would say the key verse that all of the New Testament hinges on. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. What a great key verse. Uh, and really, you could say that sums up the entirety of the New Testament in a nutshell. It really does. Um, and so Luke is very instrumental in writing these things. The key chapter is chapter 15, a great chapter. He uses three different parables to illustrate uh, this point uh, of the fact that Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. He uses the parable uh, of the lost sheep, the fact that he went out and sought for the sheep <coughs> and saved him, the fact that... Uh, there was the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the prodigal son. <coughs> All of those found in chapter 15. And again, uh, just seems to sum up uh, in just three short, brief parables um, really the whole purpose that, that Luke is focusing in on with the writing of his gospel. Uh, I think, I believe very strongly that uh, Luke's gospel was written to Theophilus, who perhaps uh, was a well-to-do, influential man who uh, was interested, but perhaps had some questions. And Luke was doing this in an attempt to clarify and to help him to know these things with authority and with certainty uh, that he could come to Christ. Great book written uh, out of the four gospels. Uh, Probably the the most concisely written as far as uh, chronologically, he's very very strict in his chronology of events, um, but also very comprehensive. Very very uh, includes more about the entirety of Christ in his earthly ministry than any of the other gospels. All right, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed. Father, we're thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless it and use it. And Lord, help us as.